Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. It's 1952, and a newlywed might be newly dead. High Noon. Hello, and welcome to... Unspooled! This is a show where every week we... Batter our way through the AFI Top 100. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And last week, we talked about E.T. And I asked a very important question, or at least I thought an important question. Does this movie hold up to children of this generation like you and I felt when we saw it? And the answer was a resounding yes. A resounding yes. We got so many tweets from people being like, I have been showing my kids this. My kids are six. My kids are eight. My kids love this movie. Yeah, that actually made me really happy uh, to to see that because, you know, I think I'm a little bit jaded in what I'm seeing on TV that passes in entertainment for kids. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And to see that a movie like this still holds up, it gives me faith and hope that our children will grow up to be great adults. So it was interesting that uh, Cameron H. from the Earwolf Forums brought something to our attention from our Facebook group. He said that the Facebook group has put E.T. below King Kong, which is interesting. What do you think about that? I'm surprised. I am surprised. I'm legit surprised. It also does dovetail with this, we take points off modern films. Well, thing. yeah. And, it, and, you know, and Cameron brought up something interesting. He's like, I didn't feel anything by watching King Kong, but I felt something watching E.T. And I felt happy. And I think that's a valid emotion. And I would agree with that. Like, I don't know if I was as emotionally invested in Kong as I am in E.T., I mean, I hate happiness. Oh, I am an anger <laughs> film critic. I'm very down with happiness. I've been thinking about this a lot, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's hard to really say that something from your generation is important. Like, right. You know, I feel like I've been having this problem a lot, like thinking about everything on the list, that there's so many things I kind of want to take a stand for. Like, this movie is important. This should be on the list. But is it like a generational modesty? Out. Like, are we humble about our own work? Like, you know, I don't know. Well, I think what we're finding also is do 
movies have to be, you know, quote unquote important. Like when you mentioned Harry Met Sally on the FI list, you know, I think a lot of people rallied behind that. Like, yes, that's a great movie. I feel the same way about Back to the Future. I'm like, Back to the Future is a great movie. Is there a difference between like a movie that is like, that quote unquote, like means something versus a movie that's just great and fun? I I don't know. Yeah. Or even stuff that sort of kind of fits the same slot. Like, Mm -hmm. would I swap out E.T. for Jurassic Park if that was an option? Ooh. And and maybe like I think I actually do like Jurassic Park a little bit would, better, but something in me feels like that's gross. Like I'm not allowed to say that. Well, would you swap out Jaws for Jurassic Park? No. Interesting. Okay. I love sharks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I love that it just comes down to the animal type. <laughs> um, let's see what else people are saying. Sai uh, Casey 2.0 writes: ET is definitely not a father figure, but he is a new subject of love, someone who Elliot loves and who loves him in return. And then, like ET's father, ET has to go away. But this time, Elliot understands why. That doesn't make it easier, but it does mean that now he has a way to process it. Wow. Well said, Sai Casey. That is. I mean, yeah, I guess a lot of growing up is confronting loss. Yeah. And maybe trying to understand why. You know, I I think, you know, Mr. Rogers did that amazing episode about, you know, goldfish dying. And maybe it's this is a a way to help kids through divorce. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Rogers also has talked about what is an assassination. Mr. Rogers is pretty bold. I like that idea that, that, that we shouldn't hide the darkest things from kids. And honestly... You know, sometimes dads leave and there is no why. There is right. no why, but that doesn't mean the feeling isn't still just as strong. And I want to just uh, give a shout out to Ross uh, Bonami, who did a little poem, or maybe it's a little rap. I don't know, but I'll try to do it the best way, uh, <laughs> the best way I can. The name's E.T. and I rock with Ellie. I like to drink beer while I watch the telly. I'm a three-foot alien trying to call my home city. I'll bring myself back to life. You don't deserve my pity. That's a nice little rhyme by Ross Bonamio. I think has been writing poems for every one of our AFI movies. <laughs> you know what that poem tells me is what? that E.T. is British. <laughs> yeah, he's watching the telly. Yeah. All right, so Paul. Yes. In our last episode, we asked people to do a shout out. What do you think High Noon is about and can you do it in your best Southern draw? Are you yes. ready for this? Are you I ready cannot for this? wait. Let me hear it. Well, Pilgrim, I think High Noon is about a duel in an old west town. (laughs) High Noon is about a group of city-slicking administrative professionals who try every single day to eat at noon, but instead inevitably eat their lunches at 1045 at their desk. In High Noon, a no-good bandit is making big trouble in a small town. High Noon is a story of two cowboys about to do battle. I picture a clock and two dusty old hombres about to go to war. Well, the story of High Noon is a story of good versus evil. A black hat and a white hat. High Noon has to be about two fellows with no timepieces that need to figure up where to meet up at. I think High Noon is a story about a man who lost his way, and it's about high time that he comes home at noon. Well, Paul, what do you think of them cowpokes there making these guesses? I think that their guesses are pretty good. You know what? But let's talk about what really happens in this movie, because now it's time for our feature presentation. 
Okay, Amy, it's number 27 on the AFI's top 100 list. It's a 1952 movie called High Noon with Gary Cooper, Grace Kelly, Lloyd Bridges, uh, Katie Gerardo, Lon Chaney Jr., uh, and Thomas Mitchell. And it's kind of known as the quintessential Western. Uh, What would you say the plot of this movie is? The plot of this movie is that Gary Cooper is the Marshal Will Kane. He has just gotten married and like one minute later retires from the marshalship because his wife, Grace Kelly, is anti-violence. She's a Quaker. So she wants him to move away and become a store clerk. But of course, as soon as he gives up his badge, he finds out that Frank Miller, the guy who hates him, has come to town, is coming to town on the noon train. He's got like 90 minutes to get a posse together to help him kill Frank Miller or he will die. So what he does is he goes from door to door in real time, knocking on doors, saying like, please help me. And everybody is a coward and comes up with a reason why they won't help him until he finally has to face Frank Miller alone. And if you like that summary, okay, but you would prefer it in song, well, good, because the film opens with the entire plot in song and then plays the song all through the movie. You hear the plot over and over again, so you'll never forget the plot to the point that when he's walking through town, you hear people being like, I like this song, and so did the Academy, because it won an Academy Award. All right, well, here's the song. Oh, to be on quicks, love and duty. Supposing I lose my fair hair beauty. Look at that big hand move along. Yeah, in high noon. He made a vow while in state's prison. Thought it would be my life or his. And I'm not afraid of death, but oh, what will I do if you leave me? What will he do if Grace Kelly leaves him because this Frank Miller dude hates him and he has to rhyme prison with hisn? <laughs> well, I can already tell by your tone where we are going to be talking about High Noon today. Oh, I'm not that negative. I'm not that negative. I'm not that negative. I just get really sick of this song. No, <laughs> I um, I think right out of the gate, I'm going to say High Noon is fine. <laughs> I I enjoyed words from Paul. I enjoyed it. You know, this is a movie that is a really interesting conceit, right? It takes place from 10:35 a.m. to 12:15 p.m. Uh, so almost in real time, you're watching what is happening on this Sunday early afternoon. Exactly. This character, Will Kane, has basically 90 minutes to reconcile with the fact that he goes from being a groom at the start to possibly dying at the end with people already making his coffins. Can he get anybody to help him in this big shootout that he knows is coming at noon? And I would argue, too, not only a groom, but a well-respected sheriff of this town. You know, he was a marshal of this town. Like, he is held in very high esteem when you first see him. You know, he is retiring from a job well done and, uh, and then realizes that it was all just bullshit. People yeah. don't actually care about him as much as they said that they did. Yeah, it's that whole Bruce Willis thing. I thought I was out. I thought I was quitting. He's surrounded by people, and all these people we're about to hear in this clip right here betray him with heavy foreshadowing. Well, one more ceremony and Will's a free man, more or less. <laughs> well, Marshal, turn in your badge. I tell you the truth, I kind of hate to do this without your new Marshal being here. Will? Fuller, Howe, and I are the entire board of selectmen in this community. We're also your very good friends. With the fine job you've done here, I feel free to say, and the judge will bear me out. This town will be safe till tomorrow. (laughs) 
has there ever been a movie in the history of the world where somebody's like, we're good. Everything's fine. This building will <laughs> never be destroyed. This plane can't go down. This ship will never sink. Well, look, I mean, of course problems are going to arise. We don't want to see Gary Cooper live happily ever after with Grace Kelly, even though I felt the age was a little disturbing. 28 years, I did the math uh, between them. Yeah, I don't really want to see him right off with Grace Kelly. Wasn't I just complaining about watching a Gary Cooper the other episode where he was like romancing Audrey Hepburn? And that's after this. I mean, Gary Cooper was like a stud. Like, let's be fair. I mean, Gary Cooper was a silent era star. He was a guy from Montana who moved to California, started to do silent westerns. Oh, by the way, can you guess what Gary Cooper's mom's name was? No. Alice Cooper. Nice. Yes, it was. Sweet. Alice Cooper. Uh, Uh, He moves to Hollywood. He becomes a cowboy. He takes it really seriously. Like, let's, I feel like I might rag on Gary Cooper a bit, so I want to give him full honors right here up at the top. I just want to be like, I'm not hating on Gary Cooper. He moves to Hollywood. He decides he's really going to take being an actor seriously. He starts doing his own makeup, taking photos of himself, watching his dailies and realizing, oh, the more I do, the more ridiculous I look. He'd try to look evil and be like, I look stupid. So his thing really early on was he trained himself to barely do anything at all. Oh, wow. Which in the silent era is really rare. You know, people are kind of trained to emote and be like, oh, my God, it's a train. We're going to die. Which is why Buster Keaton stood out and Gary Cooper kind of did the same thing. Well, Gary Cooper also in this film didn't wear any makeup. They really wanted to kind of show the, the sweat and the worry, the frown lines on his face. He was an older guy at this point. And so by... Eliminating makeup, you could actually see on his face that he was a little bit more freaked out. Well, I might say I think he's wearing mascara. <laughs> I mean, does he <laughs> think he's wearing mascara right at the very, 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 very end? But anyways, uh, Gary Cooper is super hot, apparently, when he's younger. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where Tallulah Bankhead, this like famous sex pop movie star, says that she moved to Hollywood, quote, to fuck Gary Cooper. Wow. And someone's like, and how was it? And she just said, mission accomplished. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, we talked about people who are kind of having a fascination with someone on screen. When we get to another character in this movie, remind me of that, because there's somebody else who had a mission to fuck someone in this movie. Whoa, okay. But uh, anyways, the year that Tallulah Bankhead said that she wanted to fuck Gary Cooper was the year that, uh, I believe it was the year that Grace Kelly was born. So that's what the math that we're working oh, with. Oh, wow. And part of how Gary Cooper became famous is he started boning somebody that, I'm sure you've heard of, Clara Bow, the It Girl, the original yes, It Girl. of course. He started boning Clara Bow. She was like, put this hot guy in my movie. She put him in It. He was in It for like a minute and a half, maybe. And oh, that wow. is what really launched him as a star. That's what turned him from being like guy who can ride a horse in the background to total stud. You know, a lot of people always ask Gary Cooper, why did you come back to Westerns? And I found this really rare interview with him uh, on the set of one of his films. And here's what he said. 
I like westerns because the good ones are real. You feel real when you're making them, and, uh, well, you don't feel actorish. The western picture tells stories of the pioneer period. The pioneers uh, braved the elements, and we are brought close to the pioneer people by seeing the western picture, and uh, we realize that our country was and is full of people who believe in America. It's interesting that, you know, he views the Western as like a tale of America. It's true. And also what I can't help wondering, though, in that quote, he had done a lot of Westerns. But one of the things that I'm thinking of hearing him talk about that is, you know, Western era was like early 1800s, mm-hmm. 1840, 1850, maybe max. He is talking at a time when Western people, when this era he's talking about, all of those people were pretty much dead. And I've always wondered how much... We were just guessing that that's what they were like, and how much we're just extrapolating from the movies we made about them. Like, interesting. There might have, I mean, there must have been some overlap where they could really ask anybody who'd been alive during the pioneer right. days, but almost not really. Like, who knows? Right? Are we just copying what somebody else's imagination told us that time was? Exactly, because honestly, if you ask me to picture 1830, mm-hmm. I would picture a movie. More than I would picture right. anything else. Oh, 100%. I mean, now, here's the thing about High Noon that I think is really interesting. This movie is kind of a allegory uh, for what was going on with McCarthyism at this point. So much so that the writer, Carl Foreman, was blacklisted when the movie came out. You know, people were picketing this film. Yeah, here's the thing about High Noon. This movie is just hands down capital letters, political, like in so many ways, even in the modern era, which we'll get to. But when High Noon comes out, everybody's getting interrogated ruthlessly by the Hewitt Commission asks, like, are you now or have you ever been a communist? Carl Foreman had been a communist or communist adjacent. A lot of people were. That's the thing. Communism was not that uncommunism. Sorry, I, don't yeah, like, yeah. I know I'm saying that weird. But there's a secondary thing going on when you talk about communism in Hollywood. A right. Tiny brief Hewitt history. Da, 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 da. I love it. Um, In the 30s, writers in Hollywood are trying to get together and form the Writers Guild, you know, the earlier stages of what we have today. And they're asking for things like, hey, can we get, like, a decent salary? And the studio bosses, um, Harry Warner in particular, was like, fuck you, you communists. He was super mad. And it was because he didn't want to pay them I did not realize that's where it started from. Yeah, that's part of where this division comes from in Hollywood is this idea of— all of these workers, when they were trying to unionize, the bosses were calling them communists because they were mad because they didn't want to pay people, wow. which is what we still have happening today. Like, That's you know, fascinating. I was at MTV, and we all got fired because we unionized. That was one of the main reasons. Like, this oh, yeah. fight is still happening. So they drew this line between people asking for basic financial rights to communism. And a lot of people were on the side of basic financial rights. So was Carl. So you get lumped in with this idea of communism. And then in the 50s, that idea of communism turns yeah. into you love the Russians. But yeah, that's sort of why you have this animosity. And then you also have the secondary thing going on in Hollywood, which is that Hollywood doesn't want to be accused of doing anything emotionally corrupt. So you know how like now you can quote unquote trigger the libs by being like, you're not being fair. So they'll be like, oh my God, I'll be so fair. Can we interview a Nazi and tell him he's nice? Right. That's sort of what Festival. was happening too with Hueck. They yeah. were like, 
we need to prove that there are no communists in here. We need to we need to double sure that we don't have like Soviet influences because Hollywood right. has to protect itself. So they started tearing themselves apart, tearing well, themselves open and creating these horrible divisions. And blacklisting some amazing talent. Like as a matter of fact, Henry Fonda was supposed to do this film, but he was blacklisted at the time, could not get hired. You know, Gary Cooper kind of gray listed at the time. So he was able to kind of get in. You know, his career was a, a faltering, but people that we look back on now as kind of these icons of this era were unable to work and, yeah. you know, caused so many people to, you know, take tragic ends or leave the country. It, it, it's a really damning thing. I never realized where it started. I always knew where it ended, but I never realized where it started. Yeah. And if you think about it, part of what they were saying was communist propaganda in a movie mm-hmm. was somebody saying like bankers were maybe bad people. Wow. You know, they were looking for stuff like that and saying, we should say that money is great and people earning it are terrific. And Henry Fonda is doing Grapes of Wrath. So, yeah, totally. But where this comes down to High Noon in particular is Carl Foreman, the writer, knows he's going to be called in front of HUAC. He knows he's going to be asked if he's a communist. And he knows that what they really want him to do is name names, is say Mm -hmm. who else was a communist. He knows he's not important, but they're hoping he'll be like – Henry Fonda or something, right. that he'll rat out other people, and he won't do it. That's his moral quandary. And he knew this weeks in advance, maybe months in advance. And as he's getting closer and closer to having to testify, that's when he realizes that everybody around him, everyone that he thought was his friend, even this producer that he's been working with, making High Noon forever, they've been working together forever, this guy Kramer, people are like literally crossing the street when he's walking down the sidewalk wow. because nobody wants to be associated with anybody who might possibly be in trouble. Like it's contagious. So Foreman was saying at the time, he said, quote, as I was writing this screenplay, the one for High Noon, it became insane because life was mirroring art and art was mirroring life. It was all happening at the same time. I became that guy. I became that Gary Cooper character. Wow. And he turned like his producer. He turned Kramer into like the mayor of the town, into this betrayer because Kramer said Kramer tried to get him kicked out of the movie. Like Kramer well, tried they to were ruin take his, his career. They took his credit off the film. Yeah, everybody tried to ruin him. I mean, John Wayne was asked to do High Noon first before they gave it to Gary Cooper. And John Wayne was like, no, this is a communist film. I will not do it. And then John Wayne went on the warpath against this movie because John Wayne was like, I believe in, you know, red-blooded American values. I mean, John Wayne, we're going to have to talk about John Wayne. I mean, John Wayne was like kind of a pansy. I mean, John Wayne was not the American. John Wayne was typical Typical posturing conservative, right. if we can say. Didn't put his neck on the line, right. really. His iconic image is of someone who puts his neck out on the line, but he never did in real life. That's he really never did in real life. He said he was too busy making movies about the war during the war to even fight in the war. You know, he wow. always came up with, like, good excuses for why he wasn't there. And so um, John Wayne really went on the warpath trying to destroy High Noon before it even came out, which— In the extreme example of John Wayne being a giant hypocrite, Mm -hmm. when Gary Cooper wins the Oscar for High Noon, because Gary Cooper does do a good job, he asks John Wayne to accept the statue for him, and John Wayne gives the speech. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad to see that they're giving this to a man who is not only most deserving, but has conducted himself throughout his years in our business in a manner that we can all be proud of him. Cooper and I have been... Friends hunting and fishing for more years than I like to remember. He's one of the nicest fellows I know. I don't know anybody any nicer. And our kinship goes further than that friendship because we both fell off our horses into pictures together. Now that I am 
through being such a good sport, spouted all this good sportsmanship, I'm going to go back and find my business manager, an agent, producer, and three-name writer, and find out why I didn't get High Noon instead of Cooper. <laughs> I can't fire any of these very expensive fellas, but I can at least run my 1930 Chevrolet into one of their big black new Cadillacs. <laughs> Okay, John Wayne, you jerk. You didn't get High Noon because you turned it down and then you trashed it forever. When I see John Wayne up there, I know we're supposed to see you like, I'm a humble shucks man. My car's old. (laughs) Right. I see a coward and a hypocrite. Now, was Gary Cooper asking John Wayne to accept it kind of like a dig? I wonder. I mean, because they were were friends. You know, they'd known each other forever. I, I love the idea of him being like, yeah. get up there and say nice things about this movie. Yeah. Because after this movie is out, John Wayne starts giving interviews where he says, I'll tell you about Carl. Wait, I want to do this in a John Wayne voice. Yeah. Can I do that? I want yeah, to see yeah, if sure. I can do this. Or I'll tell you about Carl Foreman and his rotten old high noon. Everybody says it was a great picture because Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly were in it. It's the most un-American thing I've seen in my whole life. The last thing in the picture is old Coop putting on the U.S. Marshal's badge under his foot and stepping on it. I'll never regret having run Foreman out of this country. By the way, he does not step on the badge, but that's no. how this happened. Like, he, he throws it in the dirt. He throws it in the dirt. And then later, Wayne says, this is in an interview with Roger Ebert. He's still mad about it. This is like 20 years later. Wayne is like describing High Noon to Roger Ebert, and he says, what a piece of you-know-what that was. Here's a town full of people who have ridden in and covered wagons all the way across the plains. And then when three no-good bad guys walk into town and the marshal asks for a little help, everybody in town gets shy. If I'd been the marshal, I would have just been so goddamn disgusted with those chicken-livered yellow sons of bitches that I would have just taken my wife and saddled up and rode out of there. Which, okay, wait, hold on. I'm like, now I'm thinking of like a couple of things. Because one, that actually is sort of what happens in the movie. Yeah. He does just ride out of there. So now he's like mad about it. I don't know what exactly John Wayne's mad about. He sounds kind of like those guys who are like, you know what? We wouldn't have Parkland if I had a gun. I would have saved it. And you're like, really? I am kind of fascinated that he had such a negative reaction to this film. Because at the end of the day, if you take away the political connotations, it's a great Western. It's it's a Western for people who don't like Westerns. Or that's how people view High Noon. You know, it's one man against, you know, the three toughest people out there to save a town. Now, clearly, Carl Foreman goes through the HUAC Commission after the movie is written and made. So where are people seeing it? Are they just feeling like right now this is what's going on? It's, it's like, I guess when I watch it, it doesn't seem overtly political, even though it is. Well, it's sort of like now that I'm a film critic in the era of Trump, every movie is about Trump to me. Right, okay. I wonder yeah. if it's like that. But I do think it was super delivered. I mean, Foreman said, you know, the scene in the church when when uh, Gary Cooper goes in there and asks people for help and everybody's like, sure, oh, wait, but we have all these conditions and, oh, maybe right. it's not a bad idea. He said, that is a distillation of meetings I had with partners and associates and lawyers. And then he felt like he also had scenes where somebody would come in and be like, I'll help. But then when he realized nobody else was helping – he left. So me not knowing anything about the HUAC Commission in reference to this film, I looked at it simply as a Western. I don't look at it as having a double meaning. I didn't know about all this kind of backlash until doing the research. Yeah, but, but what you see when you watch it is this idea of a man who's going against the grain of his town, who mm-hmm. has to make the right choice, who has to make the choice in a vacuum. A guy who right. so believes in his inner core that he is right – that he risks everything. He risks his wife. He risks unpopularity. 
And that is why, did you know that High Noon is the most requested movie of all time in the White House uh, DVD screening room? I heard that. I heard it was President Clinton's favorite film. He watched it 17 times during his two terms as president. Yeah, he watched it 17 times. And when George Bush got into the White House and was like, you got any advice from me? He was like, watch High Noon. I mean, wow. but this has been going on forever. Like Eisenhower watched the movie like nonstop on repeat. Obama liked the movie too. And then we like use High Noon to even describe what being a president does. I mean, when Obama tried to tighten gun laws, right. one of the newspaper headlines was Obama to go High Noon on NRA and gun lobby. And then it said- wow. He may, like Gary Cooper, wind up bloodied and disenchanted, but at least when the credits roll on his presidency, Obama will be able to drop his marshal's badge on the ground and limp off into the sunset. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. Stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You know, I think in talking about this movie, I'm already kind of shifting an opinion of it, uh, you know, because I see the relevance that it has. In watching it without any of that, it just felt to me, like I said, fine. You know, it, it's it's a more than capable Western. I don't dislike Westerns. I've seen a lot of Westerns. But to me, there was something a little bit just kind of bland about it, you know, and, and the performances were great, but everything just seemed pretty steady. Now, I do find it interesting that that this movie comes out to such negative uh, kind of reaction, but yet wins four Academy Awards, nominated for seven, uh, and it even wins four Golden Globes. So that means that the town of Hollywood, which it is giving the middle finger to, embraces the movie at the end of the day. I mean, sort of. There's also... I mean, do you remember Hedda Hopper, one of the people who just made, like, Citizen Kane a nightmare? Yeah. Like, Hedda Hopper seems to pop up a lot. Yeah. Hedda Hopper, who I love and hate in equal measure because I respect her so much as, like, a powerful film journalist. I right. can't imagine being a, a journalist with that much power, honestly. I mean, Hedda Hopper really hated this movie for that reason. Like, she went after it because of the HUAC stuff, and she tried to make it lose all the Oscars. It became her, like, life's goal. Wow. You know how now we have all these Oscar bloggers who are like, aren't people sick of, like— Alfonso Cuaron, or they come up with mm -hmm. like, you know, the way that Weinstein even would figure out reasons to attack tiny films and right. be like, they stole their plot from this, or they didn't pay that, or they would bring everything down. Uh, she was doing that back in the 50s. She was really going wow. after High Noon. In all of her columns, she was just on the rampage. And what she wanted was she wanted either Cecil B. DeMille to win for The Greatest Show, or she wanted John Ford to win for The Quiet Man, just so... High Noon didn't win. She really didn't want High Noon to win. So she would do stuff like go to the DGA Awards and, you know, report back from it. And she yeah. was like, Ahem. you know, by the way, the whole like High Noon table when John Ford won, they sat on their hands and they were totally ungrateful. Oh, It would just wow. start lying about it. And she would even lie to the point where she was like, 
you know, Cecil B. DeMille and John Ford basically already made High Noon. Like, they already did it. So High Noon is just copying these two other guys who should be winning the Oscar. She said that Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Virginian, and um, John Ford's Stagecoach were basically High Noon, which is basically like saying any Western is High Noon. But she was trying everything she could to chip away at it, to make sure But it sure didn't that- work. And in a weird way, it feels like in the privacy of people's homes, when they were voting and no one could see who they were voting for, they went and supported this movie that they couldn't maybe vocally support in public. Yeah, but you were seeing crazy stuff happen. Like somebody tweeted at me a couple of weeks ago and they were like, is it ever okay for a critic to change their mind on a film? Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. You know, I've changed my mind on films a lot the second time. Like I'll see a movie that I'm unsure about, like mm-hmm. a rival I watch it twice before I review it to really sense myself out. But then there's stuff like what happened in the Hollywood Citizen News when High Noon comes out. Because the guy from the Hollywood Citizen News, this guy Lowell Reedlings, he reviews High Noon and he's like, it's great. And then five days later, I don't know what conversation he was having. He reviewed it again. And this time he was like, eh, the writer sucks. The writer being the communist. And he he, when he reviewed it again, he said... The plot, despite its tightness and sparse use of dialogue, is actually the film's weakest power. Close analysis shows the story is tired by mid-telling. Some of the weaknesses of the good citizens of the town, which are underlined repeatedly, are just the sort of thing which brings forth cries of communist propaganda in motion pictures. I mean, it's basically like, who came to his newspaper desk and was like, you gave that movie a good review? Yeah, wow, wow, wow. It's crazy. Sorry, my voice is like excited just because this is journalism nerdery. And I'm like, holy shit, what was going on? I would argue that after hearing all this, this is the most controversial film that we've done. I mean, sure, Citizen Kane, you know, infuriated people. But this really put Hollywood on blast. And, you know, it's interesting that it gets put on this list because it's something that kind of is taking down Hollywood in a very major way that – I guess, is now being held up in a very high acclaim because it, I guess, had the balls to do it? Yeah, it's sort of like, I guess what we have to do is really parse out, is High Noon good for the movie that it is, or is High Noon good for what it means, like for the middle finger that it gave? Right. Because I think when you hear the anger in a lot of people's voices, like in John Wayne's voice, honestly, it kind of reminds me of like the football protests of the NFL people taking a knee in that people's reactions are so personal and also not exactly right, not exactly right to what the film is trying to say. I mean, Howard Hawks hated High Noon. Really? He hated High Noon that he and John Wayne wound up making a movie later called Rio Bravo, which they said at the time was their middle finger to High Noon. It basically reversed all of it. It was like the good America where but trouble comes and the sheriff is a good person and everybody in the town helps him and everything works out exactly how it should because that's how it was, damn it, because that's what they wanted America to be because it insulted them to think that America wasn't like that. And so to them, High Noon basically was like, fuck you, Hollywood, but it was also, fuck you, the idea that the normal American man is good, that the Wild West right. is good, that the that the roots of where America came from weren't just perfect and they were just furious about it. Well, maybe that's what, was interesting to me or what was my issue with the film is that this feels much more in line with the type of film that you would see now. You know, someone who is left to their own devices, no one else is helping them. I mean, you could draw a very uh, tenuous line to like Death Wish, you know, or Taken. It's like one person against everyone. You know, no one's going to help this person. So he's got to get vengeance for himself. I mean, even that new movie Peppermint, you know, it's like, 
the law screwed her over and now she's taking it into her own hands. That idea of one person against the world is a movie trope that we've seen since the 70s till now. That's so true because when I was watching High Noon, I was sort of uncomfortable and I was kind of irritated by Gary Cooper, I guess, because I was watching Gary Cooper and I was thinking like, oh, this is who Travis Bickle thinks he is. Mm-hmm. That everybody else in the world is weak, and he's the one person who, with his gun, is supposed to take out evil. And this idea, this macho man alone, has been kind of mutated and perverted and freaks me out. I mean, they even call Travis Bickle cowboy in the movie. He wears right. cowboy boots a lot. He thinks he's a cowboy. With this performance, it's an interesting one because it's not winning, if that makes sense, or charismatic. It, he doesn't have the tropes of what we normally think of a, you know— a John Wayne character to have. It's very uh, black and white, just like, I'm a good person. I'm going to try to get help. But you don't see that much emotion on him. He's just focused. Even the love relationship that he had with Grace Kelly, I, I didn't think their chemistry was that great at all. And it's odd that they had an affair after this film. I, I felt in many respects watching Gary Cooper he felt frail to me or like a little out of step. I mean, I know he shot this movie while having a bleeding ulcer. Yeah, he was really sick. He was really sick. And I feel like some of that shows up, but where you maybe play into that more like in a film like Unforgiven and you kind of see those frailties, I don't think that you're seeing that much character. I don't, I think that the idea of what Gary Cooper is doing is more impressive than the performances in it. I mean, the only performance that really sings to me is this woman who owns the like uh, the shop in town, uh, Katie Gerardo. Is that oh, yeah. A, yeah, am I pronouncing her name right? Yeah. I love her, and I want to talk about her a lot, but I want to pick up on what you're saying right now really fast because, yeah, Gary Cooper plays this, like he's just old and tired. It's that kind of thing where you're like, I'm too old for this shit, you know? Yeah. The John McClane of now, which is ironic because the John McClane that we first meet in Die Hard is basically Gary Cooper. In fact, hey, wait, I have a clip of this. Still the cowboy, Mr. McClane, Americans all alike. Well, this time John Wayne does not walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. It's Gary Cooper, asshole. What? I've never even realized there was a high noon reference in Die Hard. That's crazy to me. Yeah, and if you think about it, it makes sense. He's alone, this force of law, in a building. The people outside, the other lo- the other cops who are supposed to help him are fucking it up. They're not doing right. the right thing. He alone has to do it. But I think why we're finding people watching this uh, movie and relating to this movie is because it is the fantasy that we all have. It is the fantasy of, like, if push came to shove, I could do it. I think Die Hard is a perfect example of you know, a movie that captures so many people's imaginations is a story well told, but also it's like, what would I do if I was in this situation? He's just a normal guy. This is Bruce Willis before he becomes the one surfing on like Russian MIGs and, you know, whatever, live free or die hard. You know, this is the normal human Bruce Willis. Yeah, this is the Bruce Willis before he's like, what, launching a cop car at a helicopter? Oh, yeah. Or or like surfing on like a, a subway grate or something in, uh, in Die Hard 3. But I would argue that John McClane is a more charismatic character than Gary Cooper's character in this film. Um, yeah, I don't totally get that. I I think it's just because all my Gary Coopers I've really watched have been this like older Gary Cooper with like a young chick. Mm-hmm. It also because I don't totally even believe he like boned Grace Kelly. I think he kind of just said that. I oh, think boy. 
You don't. I mean, everybody said that Grace Kelly slept with everybody, which I don't really. That's so gross. Believe it feels like one of those things, like ha ha, you right. know, like yeah. whisper networky. I mean, this is a kind of a gross thing that Gary Cooper said about Grace Kelly. It's been quite a few years since we had a girl in pictures that looks like she was born on the right side of Park Avenue. Okay, Ooh. that's a right. Then he says, looks like she could be a cold dish with a man until you got her pants down and then she'd explode. Oh, I do not God. believe Grace Kelly, who married a prince, would bone that fucking dude. Yeah, no way. It's interesting to hear those words out of like people <laughs> from this time period's mouth. And because is that on record somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and, you know, Grace Kelly is very pretty in this movie. But I'd also say that she sticks out a little bit. Yeah, I know she's a Quaker, but it just seems like she's a movie star in a Western. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the way they're filming Grace Kelly in this, they're totally giving her the Faye Ray treatment when Faye Ray winds up on King Kong's Island, where she's the only one in white. She's so pale, and she just pops against everything else. I mean, when you see her in her bridal dress, she is glowing, and everybody else is in, like— Darker colors. They make her walk through this movie almost like a ghost. You know, they're like, the exceptional blonde is here. Yeah, and it, and I think there's something really interesting about, just as we're talking about, the way they shot this movie. And that's why she's even more shocking about it, too. You know, the director, Fred Zinneman, wanted this, like, hot, stark look to the film. And so the cinematographer, Floyd Crosby, just kind of did this by, like, not filtering the sky and having the prints made, like, a little bit lighter than normal. So the movie looks almost... Um, Noiry for a western, if you would like, you know, there's like there's like a shadowing to it, but she really like looks like she's on a different film. Yeah, they're making this gritty. I mean, it's kind of raging bullish, honestly. Yeah. Like what they're doing with this processing is they're trying to make it look really ugly, and they had to fight for it because the producers, some of the producers, were like, "We hate the way this footage looks," because to them, we already had those beautiful full color John Wayne westerns, yeah, where the sky was all lit up and it was gorgeous and it was yellow and it was blue and there were red rocks. They were like, "What is this weird like high contrast shit?" And the way they wanted the film to look, they wanted it to look like a newsreel. Which I like that. They use the word newsreel, which to me gives oh, it this wow. almost even more immediacy of saying. Well, historical this, quality that makes it feel real or something. Yeah. And saying like, hey, this is also what's happening. It's raw. It's yeah. raw for a Western. Which, yeah, I guess it's like important for us to kind of talk about it and put it in context. Because I think we have this thing. I have this thing where you see a black and white movie and you're like, oh, it's just old and it's ye olden and right. that's how they did it. No, no, no. This was a choice. 100%. And I think there are a lot of cool flourishes in this film. I mean, one of the best, it's in the trailer and it, I play a clip of it, but it doesn't even register because it's very visual is when they're talking about this bad guy who's coming to town, they do this push in on the chair and you kind of hear the story, but as you're going in, that's a really cool, I thought like a cool artistic way to kind of, you know, add an importance to this character and tell you the story, but go like, he was in that chair and here we are. <laughs> Wait, yeah. <laughs> I love that you're saying that because that is a clip that I pulled. Oh, really? Yeah, for two reasons. I pulled it for two reasons. One, I love how it suddenly gets this horror music. Yeah. And two, I had this thought in my head of... Uh, Clint Eastwood at the other like RNC where he gave a speech to oh, a chair. an empty chair. And I was like, I wonder if he got that idea from High Noon. It's a chair. It's dramatic. <laughs> Let's play the chair. I can't tell you what to do. Why must you be so stupid, Will? Have you forgotten what he is? Have you forgotten what he's done to people? Have you forgotten that he's crazy? Don't you remember when he sat in that chair and said, you'll never hang me, I'll come back. I'll kill you, Will Kane. I swear it, I'll kill you. I mean... It's 
it's such an interesting choice in a movie that is kind of static. They made a couple of like really crazy stylized choices. I think uh, when you talk about horror movie esque, the clocks are shown that way, and as the film kind of continues you go into the clocks more and more. You know, they're getting bigger and bigger as you're getting closer to noon when the train is going to come to town. Um, And then they do that shot where he's walking through the village at the very end, uh, facing his death, and the camera looks at him and then pulls all the way back up into the sky so that you see there is no one. He is alone. There's not dogs. There's not horses. There's not chickens. There's probably not ants if you got real close. No, it's, it. you know, and and it all speaks to this director who was able to do all these specialty shots. He did 400 shots in four weeks. That's 100 shots a week. That's an insane amount of coverage to get for this film. And I think, again, wrestling with this idea, your centerpiece character isn't as interesting as your directorial flourishes, nor as some of your side characters. Uh, You know, I know we keep on kind of bouncing around her. Let's do it. Let's talk Katie. let's, Let's talk Katie. Katie... Is this person uh, a former lover of our our marshal? Uh, actually, played a very important part in the film because uh, she couldn't pronounce uh, the actual name of the character. The original name of the character was Will Doan, but she couldn't pronounce it, so they changed it to Will Kane, uh, which is a small little just a little thing. But when she comes on screen and she's now, we meet her kind of having this relationship with Lloyd Bridges. And you get so much out of her. She's she's electric from the moment you meet her. And maybe it's just because the first couple of scenes you're with all these people that are not necessarily popping, or at least they weren't popping to me. I'm immediately drawn in. I want to see that movie. And and she she's great. I love her. I mean, Katie Jordan was a Mexican movie star. This was one of yes. the first movies she did. And I don't think she really had like a full-on blooming career. I mean, it's, it, I guess it's a cliche to say she's modern because maybe she's not modern. Maybe we had people who were that badass back then. But she's like this mogul. She's like this businessman. She's this got this huge heart. She takes no shit from anybody, not her boyfriend, not Lloyd Bridges, Bo right. Bridges dead. But y- usually when you see this character in a Western film, you know, the woman who lives upstairs in the hotel, oh. you know, the woman who takes lovers, she's usually a prostitute, right? Exactly. And she's usually going to have to, quote unquote, redeem herself for being a prostitute. By dying? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. usually what happens to her is like she leaps in front of the bullet for Gary Cooper and redeems herself that way. Right. Helen doesn't do that. Helen gets the fuck out of town with her money. She's smart. She's smart. And I love her. And yet the people in town seem to think that she's a prostitute even though she isn't. Like my favorite thing is when she's just made this deal with this dude to – have him buy her out. He starts to thank her, and then he insults her, and you know that she knows it. Mrs. Ramirez, I want to thank you for everything. I mean, when you first called me in and put the deal to me about staking me in the store and, and being a silent partner, you know, my wife thought... Uh, what I really mean to say is that you've been real decent to me right along, and I want you to know that I've been honest with you. I know you have, Mr. Weaver. Goodbye. My wife thought... I know, I know. Actually, I feel a little bad that the Katie clip I just had uh, doesn't have Katie talking that much. Uh So let's do like a badass Katie clip. And to me, this is Katie talking about machismo in general in a way that I feel like pierces through this Western to people who love Westerns, to people who love this kind of heroism that I think she's questioning and that people like Travis Bickle are like, yeah. 
You know something? I don't think you will ever make it. Let me tell you something. You're not going anywhere. You're staying here with me. It's going to be just like it was before. You want to know why I'm leaving? Then listen. Cain will be a dead man in half an hour. And nobody's going to do anything about it. And when he dies, this town dies too. I can feel it. I am all alone in the world. I have to make a living. So I'm going someplace else. That's all. And as for you, I don't like anybody to put his hands on me unless I want him to. And I don't like you to anymore. Ah, Katie! Wow. Well, you know, this is a strong female character who is not a white woman. And... And do you know anything of this time to be like, is that a rarity that she's in this uh, movie in a role like this? Yeah, because you're right. This movie on its own basically has no women. It has right. it has Grace Kelly and it has uh, Helen. And then there's like some kind of old women you see around, yes. like a person who answers the door. But there's that's really the about— The wife of the husband who's a coward, yeah. Yeah, and when you kind of drill down— it's interesting, High Noon, I think part of what maybe made Howard Hawks and John, and John Wayne mad about it is in the giant shootout. He he doesn't save the day alone. You know, Gary Cooper right. doesn't save the day alone. Grace Kelly shoots one of the dudes and then claws the other one's eyes out. I mean, yeah. she basically, he kills one and a half, she kills one and a half. And I think they were That's a little offended that, like, a woman did that. You know, I think yeah. they were a little bit offended that, like, he got saved by a chick. The way I looked at this movie without knowing its historical connotations was it was a meditation on small town life. Like the idea that people are talking behind your back. They know your business. Like when Grace Kelly goes to the hotel and the hotel clerk is kind of snarky to her and kind of reveals that, you know, Gary Cooper had an affair with Helen. And just the idea that people say one thing to your face and one thing behind your back. And, you know, I just I felt like it was about small town life. But I guess... And thinking about it, Hollywood is the small, t- the smallest town in many respects. You know, it's a, a town built on gossip. It's a town that is built a little bit on backstabbing and and you know saying one thing to somebody's face and another thing behind it. You know, maybe you know. So I did get something out of it that just did not have the political context, but still was getting the idea of this universal problem, which is like sometimes small town life can eat you up and the best thing to do is just get out of there. All right, Paul, let's call in a guest. We have an interesting one this week. Okay. His name is Henry C. Park and he's the Westerns editor of True West magazine. He is a total Western nerd. This is his area. So let's settle up and ask him some questions. I cannot wait. Well, here's my question, Henry. Where does High Noon fall for you in your pantheon of Western films? Uh, High Noon is a very interesting uh, picture. Well, I mean, it's an excellent picture, first of all. But it is a a really odd one when you talk about the pantheon of Westerns. Uh, It is an absolute favorite, considered one of the very best Westerns by people who don't like Westerns. But uh, among Western fans, it's not even on the list. I love it for all the things that that make it so different uh, from traditional Westerns, Uh, from the fact that it was shot to look like Matthew Brady photographs to the incredible weakness and and rottenness of all the people in the town, everything that, you know, is the reverse of what we come to expect. But so then Mm -hmm. what, I guess the inverse of that question is, what do people expect out of Western, the classicists? What kind of a Western do they want to know? They expect a hero. They expect... John Wayne, 
And, of course, in response to this film, John Wayne and Howard Hawks made Rio Bravo to uh, essentially say this is what would really happen in this uh, kind of a situation because the lawman wouldn't, as, as Wayne described it, run around like a whipped dog begging everyone to do his job for him. Oh, but wow. He, go into his job and uh, hope that he didn't die. It's funny that you say, you know, in talking about it, I didn't even put it together, but it's very similar to Blazing Saddles in a way too, because like in Blazing Saddles, like the whole town, I mean, it's played for a comedic effect, but like everyone abandons this sheriff who, you know, is, is facing off against this, you know, group of bad guys. And, you know, the only person that there is, is this drunk gunslinger that will come to his aid. It's funny because it never struck me either, but you're yeah. absolutely right. And of course, in both, no, as you say, in Blazing Saddles, you've got Gene Wilder, the professionally drunk right. guy. But you also have, who are the people that are willing to help Gary Cooper? A kid uh, and yeah. a one-eyed drunk. Oh, interesting. Yeah, look at that. Do we have the West correctly in our heads? Because we were talking about the pioneer spirit. I was wondering if we just guess at what the pioneer spirit was because we just saw a lot of movies about pioneers. I never met one. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, about that, though, is Westerns did not just start um, like in the 1950s when all those people were gone. Uh, there were many uh, silent and early talky Westerns that were made by people who had, in fact, been out there, had been lawmen and outlaws. Of course, it's all terribly self-serving, you know. Right. Whoever's doing their version, they were the heroes. Uh, and also have the advantage that they survived longer than anyone else. <laughs> What's the difference between a sheriff and a marshal? Um, it's really uh, an odd sort of mix, sheriffs and marshals and deputies, and frequently uh, their authorities overlapped. A sheriff was generally a lawman for a specific town, and uh, deputies would be under them. Uh, marshals were often uh, working for, directly for the state or federal marshals, and so they had uh, broader powers and covered more uh, area. It's interesting because two of the women in this film that are you know play these crucial parts, like Katie Gerardo uh, and Grace Kelly, are very strong women. Um, you know, you know, Grace Kelly helps win the gunfight at the end of the film. The Quaker with the gun. Yeah. Like to see representation of like this Mexican actress and she's playing a very strong type. Is that a different type of woman that we're seeing in Western films at this point? Uh, she is an extremely unusual character in Western movies yeah. and, and uh, great fun. The women that you had were generally either uh, school marms or, uh, you know, that kind of uh, very innocent character, or there were saloon girls. Right. And the interesting thing about Cady Harado's character is, as you say, she is uh, incredibly smart, independent, good businesswoman, not impressed by uh, men trying to impress her. She sure isn't impressed by Lloyd Bridges. Yeah, yeah. Who she <laughs> just about grinds into the dirt. And she gets out. She doesn't come back. She's gone. She's like, bye. You know, and that, I think that was a really interesting choice, too. I mean, what's, what we're sort of wrestling with in this episode is, you know, we've only ever grown up knowing postmodern Westerns. Mm -hmm. Like, that's, I think, what I've yeah. been steeped on more than anything is mm -hmm. like, well, it's not like your ordinary Western, but I almost know the ordinary Westerns less. I mean, put this in context for us. This is a huge period for Westerns, all things Western. No, that's true, uh, both for film and television. With TV, there were times where there were as many as 36 different Western series in the 50s uh, wow. running Per week, you can see why they burned those out. Yeah, yeah why was but, that? Why were we so interested? 
I, I just think there's, there's a great appeal of, of uh, pioneering stories, and um, it just it really clicked then. And one thing about Westerns, if you sit down and make a Western now, it is a very expensive prospect uh, to do a, you know, a substantial one. But back then, it was very inexpensive because the sets were standing, the costumes were available, and in fact, the more battered they looked, the more realistic. You had wranglers, you had people who knew how to do everything, and it was, it was all easily accessible. The problem now is if you set out to do even a, a fairly simple Western, you have to start from scratch. You have to build everything, you have to find your own props. Don't we shoot like most Westerns even on like the same couple sets so all Westerns yeah. kind of look the same? I mean, oh, yeah. there's a, a set that I use when I was doing uh, one of my shows, mm-hmm. and it's great. It's it's set decked. It's where they shot Deadwood. Mm-hmm. It's out there. It's, you know, it's a living, breathing thing. You know, Quentin Tarantino shot there as well. It's like it's but yeah, it's there's only so many few locations that actually can accommodate a film crew and look presentable on camera. But I wonder if, do you find, because I've only seen a handful of Westerns, you know, right. do you find that they're often morality tales or are they, or are they just action? Or, you know, are they trying to tell, you know, are they trying to tell something or are they, or are they just another way to just get an action film out? The two required things other than a saloon fight mm-hmm. uh, is something about pioneering spirit. Right. And uh, a moral point, some character that has some big moral choice that they have to uh, make a decision with. Well, I've, I've always thought that one of the most basic appeals of Westerns is we all go through life dealing with decisions that we have to make that aren't the decision that we want to make, mm. where we have to you say, okay, it's time to throw that guy down a flight of stairs. But right. you don't do it because you don't want to go to jail. I think because we are you know, animals at a certain level, there yeah. is a desire to be physical and deal with things in a direct way and not worry about what's going to happen after. Just do what you think you want to do in your heart. Yeah. And I think that's the great joy of Westerns is you get to watch Clint Eastwood do that, watch John Wayne do that. It's it's that kind of that bar talk or coffee talk where like, well, if I was there, maybe I would have done this or I would have. You get the Monday morning quarterback via these films. Was the Wild West really this violent? Now, the funny thing is that some of it was and some of it wasn't. Uh, The places that we hear about, like Deadwood and Tombstone, well, Deadwood was very violent. Tombstone had big bursts of violence but wasn't that bad overall. The most violent city in the Old West is Los Angeles. Oh, wow. And the rate of murder in L.A., uh, in the late 1800s was just staggering. Why was it so violent here? I think it was uh, just, it was sort of the end of the country. It was as far away as you could get from every place else. So a lot of the worst elements, uh, you know, ended up coming to L.A. I think right now we're in a culture where when you're a little bit younger, Westerns are not probably one of your favorite genres. And I think, you know, I grew up going like, oh, my dad likes a Western and he showed me Silverado and I like Silverado. I think that was my first kind of entry point in. And then, you know, I found Unforgiven and, you know, I really love True Grit. But, I, you know, I've kind of moved forward in the Western world. What are like three or four Western films that you feel like people who feel like they don't like Westerns should see to kind of change their opinion on, on a Western? Stagecoach, I think everyone needs to see. I 
always refer to it as the Citizen Kane of Westerns, which is in a way, way ironic because, of course, Orson Welles studied Stagecoach before he made Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're, we're, that's definitely on our list. Yeah. When the die gets there, we're going to get there. Gosh, any of the uh, Bud Bedecker, Randolph Scott uh, Westerns, um, okay. there are about eight of those. Well, of course, the Sergio Leone's yes. Fistful of Dollars, Few Dollars More, and especially The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Well, and there's a famous face in those movies, Lee Van Cleef, who makes his debut here in High Noon, and he right. doesn't get to say a word. I mean, Lee Van Cleef, so people can picture him, he's the guy with the pointy face and the narrow eyes. He's one of our first close-ups. He is the very first shot. And is this story true? I heard that Zimmerman offered Lee Van Cleef a bigger role, a speaking role, but he yes. said, if you want the speaking role, you have to get plastic surgery? Yes, that's uh, that's what Lee Van Cleef said, that uh, he would have to have a nose job, uh, wow. and then he would get to play Frank Miller. So he wanted him to look like a slightly nicer guy. Or more attractive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And wow. he said, he told uh, Zinnemann to ex- expletive himself. Uh, he refused, <laughs> and so he was written out, but uh, Zinnemann liked his face so much that he kept him... Uh, he, you know, he brought him back as the other character, but it is fun that he is the only person who has all sorts of screen time who never says a word. By the way, random aside, while we're talking about the the bit players in um, the Miller Gang, you know, Sheb Woolley was in there. Sheb Woolley, who did the Purple People Eater song, who was the guy oh, who wow. did the scream of the Wilhelm scream. We are all around to Wilhelm scream. <laughs> I love Sheb that. Woolley, it all comes together. Rock star extraordinaire showing up in all these movies in different ways. That is amazing. Um, well, Henry, can you tell us where we can find you online or where, 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 what you're up to that we can kind of uh, continue our, our, our interactions with you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me uh, online. I write Henry's Western Roundup, the online report on Western film production, and that's at www.henryswesternroundup.blogspot.com. Uh, I'm also the film editor for True West magazine, and you can find uh, my articles in there every month. And if you like to get into really uh, sort of deep dish talk about spaghetti westerns, uh, I've done audio commentary on it. It's, it's approaching a dozen. Two Lee Van Cleefs. I'm about to do my third Franco Nero. Two Ringos, two Sartanas. Oh, that's a blast. Oh, I got to check those out. That's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I mean, in the last 15 minutes of High Noon, I think Gary Cooper says, like, 10 words. I totally agree. The last act of the movie is like a silent film, which actually was one of the first thoughts I had when I first started watching it. Because watching the uh, the villains, like henchmen, just be out on the range, it they were acting a little bit more broad. And that, of course, is uh, Lee Van Cleef uh, right there. But it it felt like I was watching a silent film until... Uh, until we got into the actual wedding. It's true. And now I'm like playing the ending scene again in my head. You know, I feel like there's a version of this movie where he drops the badge in the dust. He doesn't step on it. John Wayne, he does not step on it. But he walks away. And then you see like a little kid pick it up. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I got it. I'm going to do it. Like, it's all fine. I like that they don't do that here. But where they do do that, where they do screw up is... Did you know that they make a sequel to High Noon? 
What? Yeah, they make a sequel to High Noon in 1980. With okay, not with Gary Cooper. No, not with Gary Cooper. They do it with Lee Majors. Uh, they make a sequel to High Noon 1980. It's called High Noon 2: The Return of Will Kane. What? Yeah, and it supposedly takes place a year after all of this, where Will Kane comes back to Hadleyville. He comes back to his town. There's like totally corrupt people in charge. So he shoots all the corrupt people who are now in charge of Hadleyville, and it ends. With him picking up the badge and putting it back on. And you're like, oh, that's exactly the opposite of what I knew oh, was about. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, we have talked so much about how this movie has culturally affected us, but I'd be remiss if we didn't ask how it affected a small town called Springfield. Is there a Simpsons clip? Is there a Simpsons clip? There's basically a Simpsons episode. It's called oh, wow. Papa's Got a Brand New Badge. What happens in this episode is. Homer starts a security firm. The security firm winds up having to be the new sheriff in town. They have okay. to take over. And one of the things that Homer does with his new law powers is he very much angers this bad guy called Fat Tony. So Fat Tony says he's going to go to Springfield at noon. He's going to murder Homer Simpson. And Homer Simpson goes to a church asking the good people of Springfield for help. I've kept the streets safe for you and your children. I've tricked or treated at many of your houses. Last year, I was Jar Jar Binks. Now, who will stand and fight with me? (coughs) Homie, please, why don't you just leave town? What? And let them come after you and the kids? We could come with you. In one car? With no air conditioning? And the little poop machine going every 20 minutes? Amazing. Now, Amy, it's time for some... Year facts! Year facts! All right, it's 1952. The average cost of a new house was $9,000. Average cost of a new car was $1,700. It's an interesting year because the Diary of Anne Frank is published this year. Uh, The Today Show program debuted. Uh, KFC opened its doors for delicious, affordable chicken. KFC, probably the most popular chain around the world. Yeah, that's what apparently I've heard. And Mad Magazine releases its first issue. Also, Agatha Christie's murder play, The Mousetrap, opens and becomes the longest-running production in history. Uh, Other popular films at the time, African Queen, The Greatest Show on Earth, The Quiet Man, and Singing in the Rain. Um, As far as what's going on in the news... um, Candidate Richard Nixon defends himself on t- uh, television over allegations of a secret cash fund. Uh, Rocky Marciano becomes the world heavyweight champion after knocking out Jersey Joe Walcott. Uh, Charlie Chaplin refused entry back into the U.S. after living in Hollywood for 20 years, probably due to the blacklist, I imagine. Um, and here's something really interesting. California had its second largest earthquake rocking 100,000 square miles, plus a Live atomic nuclear bomb test happened in Yucca Flats in Nevada, and that was shown on TV. Wow, that weirdly makes me feel comforted that the world was really screwed up then, too. You're right. It's like you can see parallels of what we are going through now and what's always going on. I think maybe there was never a time where people were just cool. Like everything was going just fine. (laughs) Maybe that's why back then they're like, let's just hang out uh, in the Wild West. Yeah, you know, and safer. everybody's a good person and everything is fine. All right, so Amy, this movie is pretty high on the list. It's number 27. That's pretty high. Yeah. Um, do you believe that, A, it belongs on the list? Do you believe it belongs on the list? <sighs> I mean, there's a lot of Westerns on the list. There are a lot of Westerns mm-hmm. on the list. What if I said no? You know what, Amy? I'm 
going to agree with you that in watching these films, and I can only judge it on my experience in watching them, I agree. I don't think this belongs on the list. It, it's a good movie. It just didn't get me the way that other films have. I've had an amazing time talking to you about it and kind of hearing the history about it. Like the behind the scenes of this movie is way more compelling than I felt uh, than I felt when I was watching it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I got my voice got so passionate, being like the communists and Hedda Hopper, yeah. and oh my god. But when I think about the movie, about what I like about it, I like everything outside of the movie. I like the Gary Cooper, this hero who I was sort of like, oh, all right, I'm watching you kind of like with, okay, okay, I get it. You're you're the tough guy. You're going to go it alone. You look a little vulnerable. All right, you're like every manly man showing just the right calibrated amount of weakness. Okay, cool. I like Gary Cooper better off the screen. I mean, Gary Cooper was one of the only guys who stood up to John Wayne and to everybody, like, yelling at Foreman. He told the press, he stood up to the press. He said that Foreman was the finest kind of American, when that was not a popular thing to say. And, yeah, when Stanley Kramer, the producer, tried to remove Foreman's name from the film, Cooper threatened to quit. I like that Cooper did that. I like that Cooper was the hero off screen, the one guy standing alone as much as he was on screen. And I think that that means that this film is important in its historical significance, but I don't know if it has to be on the greatest films of all time. If you tell me, would you put Die Hard on the AFI list? We've 100%. We've been having that debate this whole time. I yes. know, yes. <laughs> uh, and I think it's a little bit more relevant. And maybe I'm getting to this point where I'm believing that it's okay if a movie that inspired another great movie isn't on the list because this list is an ever-evolving list and it should be something that uh, is growing. We shouldn't just have a list that stays from the 50s and, and, the, and the 60s. We should have something that should be as up-to-date and as modern as the list itself. It's true. Although if you're asking me, like, would I rather have High Noon on the list or one of those Westerns that's like, everybody was great, I'd rather have High Noon. But you know what? The movie that John Wayne and Howard Hawks made to rebut it, Real Bravo, is not on the list. Right, but, like, forgi- but Unforgiven is. But Unforgiven is. I did I did look it up. I was like, if Real Bravo's on this list, that's kind of fascinating. They're like complimenting both sides. They're yeah. Very good, fine Westerns on both sides. But this movie also falls into that category that we've talked about in the past. It's in the Library of Congress. So it's sort of like, we know that this is a movie that is respected, and I think it does have historical significance, but that doesn't mean that it always has to be uh, one of the best films of it's all time. It's true. I just, I do like the idea of us wrestling with our past because that's what a Western movie is, is it's fighting mm-hmm. over what America was. You know, I mean, even even the director, even Zinneman said, you know, people were like, this isn't who the West was. And he was like, if you say this is not a Western character, it's true. I wasn't there in 1860, but neither was Howard Hawks. Boom. Boom. Nailed it. Boom. Nailed all right. It. Now let's roll that die. All right, Paul, it's that time of the show where we roll this little magic guy right here. What's his name again? Oh, it is uh, a Zoe, Zoe Hedron, right? Zoki Hedron. Zoki Hedron. Zoki Hedron, our 100-sided die. And you know what? I learned an interesting fact about this guy this weekend. Oh, really? Did you know that Zoki Hedron is not the proper name for 100-sided die? That it is named what? after its inventor, Lou Zoki? Whoa, I did not know that. Look at that. Me neither. That explains why I could not remember what the fuck it was called. But now that I know Luzoki, I will not forget. Luzoki, Zoki Hedron. I won't forget it now either. All right. Yeah, all right. Let's roll it. So, Lou, we like your balls. 
Cool job. I want to. I want to. Well, he didn't make this ball. He just made, and we and probably a die is probably a better. You know, it's a die. Respect the die. Okay, so I'm gonna roll it. Here we go. Da, 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 da. It is thirty. All right. So looking here on the AFI list, ooh, Apocalypse Now. Oh God, that's a big one, Amy. We're going into the jungle. I know. I feel like we had uh, a little bit of a break, but now we're going back into a American classic. I mean, another one. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All right. You know, I think probably everyone has seen Apocalypse Now or at least knows a little bit about it. Wouldn't it be fun if we had people call in and just give us like a piece of Marlon Brando wisdom. I think in Apocalypse Now, he's known for ad-libbing a lot of these things, like seeing a, a snail walk across a razor and things like that. What if you just called in and made up some wisdom a la Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now? It doesn't have to be a real line, just your own kind of people drink LaCroix and they uh, they get fizzy bellies. You know, I don't know. Something like that. That's I feel a terrible... very attacked right now, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I could use some wisdom. Let's see if we can all be a little Marlon Brando in our lives. 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824. All right, and we will see you next week for Apocalypse Now, which is available pretty much anywhere that you want to watch movies. Um, and I can't wait to talk about this movie. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.